I am the same as everybody else and that everybody's got the same biases and that even when you know that you're nudging yourself, it can help you. How do you get people to know when they need advice? I spend a tremendous amount of money on bicycles. Welcome to A Load of BS, A Practitioner's Guide to the BS Galaxy with me, Daniel Ross. Now name one thing that we all think about or discuss every day. Money. We carry so many unconscious biases when it comes to looking after our finances. You probably think you're the exception, of course. Now, Michelle Hilscher leads the financial services practice at BE Works and... Armed with a PhD in cognitive psychology from the University of Toronto, she is particularly interested in applying behavioral science to bring about improvements in financial decision-making and financial well-being. So she joins us today to discuss, amongst other things, mental accounting, the importance of skin in the game, and the work Michelle's proudest about she'll share with us. Oh, and we finish also with a fun, personal, money, quick-fire round. Today's the eighth episode in my series of very practical podcasts on the life of behavioral scientists, their challenges, their work, and how they think about the future of the industry. And I'm proud to say I'm doing this all in harness with my great partner, BE Works, one of the very best behavioral science consultancies around, co-founded as they are by Dan Ariely and Nina Mazar, who, of course, if you may remember, has been on the show with Dilip Soman. BE Works is a multidisciplinary team of behavioral scientists and psychologists working on the most complex of challenges across financial services, healthcare, sustainability, amongst other, all the while helping businesses reimagine a future in which individuals can flourish and prosper. So if you're interested in finding out a little more about what they do, please do check out their Be Curious blog, which you can find on their website at beworks.com, or do drop their CEO, Warder Malik, a line at info at beworks.com. She will be delighted to hear from you. For now, let's talk money. Michelle, welcome to A Load of BS, A Practitioner's Guide to the BS Galaxy. It's really great to have you here today. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. Great pleasure. Now, let's get straight into this. Now, you have a PhD in cognitive psychology, and you've spent the last decade and more devoted to solving various financial services challenges. So how do we start to connect the dots between cognitive psychology and financial services? So that's a great question you're asking. And it's the question that I actually asked myself about six months out of grad school, where I had landed in my first job out of academia. I was working for a governance consulting agency and my clients were were pension funds, investment boards, governance boards. And they actually were the ones who brought to me this idea of behavioral economics, because I hadn't actually come across that discipline, despite being in cognitive science for many years. And so that is where I started to see that there was a big connection between what I studied in my PhD, which was something called belief bias and things that happen every day, you know, in boards and investment committees, for instance, there's decisions that are being made where different biases might be at play. And so I started understanding that, you know, we need to figure out what are those things that are happening, but beyond that, what can we do about it? What is belief bias? Let me just dig into that a little, if I may. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So belief bias is where we have a view of the world, a view of, you know, particular realities in nature, maybe, or in society. And it's really hard to dispose of those perspectives when we encounter new evidence. So something that would probably be pretty relevant given, you know, that we've had to change and adapt our understanding of things like COVID-19 and, you know, what are the right protocols maybe. So I'm I'm getting a sense of your early journey. And I'm really interested in what then really drew you to this field of exploration and really and bringing it to the present, what continues to draw you there to financial services? What really interests you about it? So I think that in my earliest days, when I was in grad school, I was just drawn by the idea of consulting and being able to work on a lot of different types of challenges. And when I worked with these different, you know, pension funds, I realized that, wow, you know, it might be a domain that you would kind of capture under one umbrella, but there's so many different behavioral challenges that are are happening here, whether it's, you know, how, for instance, plan members set up, you know, their retirements and the sorts of decisions that they're making early on, or whether it's how groups are making decisions on the plan sponsor or plan administrator side. So for me, there's a lot of unanswered questions, regardless of of what domain we're looking at. For financial services in particular, it matters a lot to me because these are really consequential decisions that people are making every day. And they they have really big impacts, of course, you know, in the the short term and the long term. It's hugely varied. And you're absolutely right. It's something that we, for better or worse, think about at some point, most days of the week. I mean, there is a perception that financial services are so much further ahead of the game than other sectors in applying behavioral science principles. I think there's certainly plenty of academic and popular literature on saving, investing, and spending, and of course, the associated mental accounting biases at play. But before coming to the accuracy of this perception, I wonder what you think have been some of the triggers for such increased interest in the behavioral science of our finances. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a few that come to mind for me. I think the first one is probably one that a lot of people would speak about. And that is, you know, that there was a global economic crisis. And that if we were trying to understand the behaviors of individuals, but also institutions during that, or even if we look more specifically at something like the subprime mortgage crisis, that you just can't explain what's happening, what people are doing by looking at something like traditional economic theory. For instance, you've got a present bias, perhaps that has people signing on to mortgages that are going to be very clearly punitive in the long term and require, you know, big cutbacks in consumption. But because the short-term teaser rates are so appealing, people go for it. You can also look at things like market volatility and the predictable behaviors that people are engaging in there that basically just are not the predictions that come from a traditional econ perspective. And so the big question mark was opened up by um, that sort of pressure in the real world, how to explain all of these different behaviors. And it just so happened, of course, that if you look into academia, there are lots of insights there, much, much research that's been done, that's been translated into books like Nudge, Thinking Fast and Slow, Predictably Irrational, to name a few, that help the everyday person understand, well, there's a different way of explaining behavior that's actually more consistent and reliable than maybe what other economic models would tell us. I would also add Dan Ariely and Jeff Kreisler's book on money, which I forget the exact title, but they wrote a whole book specifically on this whole topic. And I interviewed Jeff on this show a while back. And I highly recommend that if you're 
interested in cognitive biases around financial services, how we think about our, our own money. I think you highlighted an important point when you referenced the example of the subprime mortgage crisis, because of course, one of our principal psychological biases, whether it's money or otherwise, is our desire for immediate benefits, our difficulty in being able to visualize our future selves. And so we tend to be a little too greedy in the present. We're all guilty of that in different ways in our lives, I think. I'm interested in mental accounting biases, which I think is sort of at the heart of what we're talking about here. The different ways, sometimes irrational ways in which we think about and manage our own money. What interests me is that I think, despite the bad rap that mental accounting often gets, as put forward principally by Richard Thaler, who first named the concept, that I think so. sometimes these accounting biases can be really beneficial. For example, I would say that you know, if you treating your own original stake differently from house money in the casino, well, Richard Thaler would say that's highly irrational behavior because, of course, both sums, whether it's your original stake or your winnings, have equal fungible value. However, it seems to me that there's actually a lot of sense in making this mental division because any portfolio builder worth their salt would tell you that you know reinvesting only your gains gives you a far higher chance of longer-term success than treating it equally to your starting pot. I think also someone like Nassim Taleb would also take that view. But I wonder whether your research and your instinct tell you that mental accounting has both healthy sides as well as some rather nonsensical ones. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's part of, you know, a strategy that you'd be building using behavioral science oftentimes. And like any intervention that you use that, you know, it can have some downstream impacts maybe that you wouldn't anticipate. An example might be, you know, like a default, for instance, is is great for many, many reasons, but also can induce passivity and make it so that people, you know, don't come back to the table and make the decisions they need to, to make in the future. I think it's also definitely got that sort of dark side to it, I suppose. I was thinking about mental accounting and windfall mentality that can happen, just even related to COVID-19 and, you know, people not going out. They have money that they typically spend on, you know, all sorts of things that is not leaving their account. And so it sits there. And the question for me is, is that money that they see as being open and, and useful for, you know, some sort of leisure spending in the future, or is it reassigned to a different account? Maybe it's actually committed into to the savings bucket, you know, as opposed to, you know, being kind of a windfall that gets spent up once people are able to get back out and, and spend again. Is there any research which shows us what's going on with post-COVID spending patterns, or is it too early to see how people are accounting for the money they may have saved over a couple of years? Yeah, actually, there is one paper I've come across recently published, I think in the last year or so. And so the hypothesis was that, you know, people are going to feel like this money that they have kind of accrued because they've not been, been going out to the movies or to dinner, that, it, that it's windfall spending. And what's shown is that you do see a splurge in certain spending categories. So people certainly will use that money to buy like durable goods, for instance. And I think it's partly you feel like a little bit licensed. You have been a good spender, not been doing a lot of spending. So now you're back in the shops and you're able to, you know, touch and feel these things that otherwise you would have had to buy online. There's a little bit of that uncertainty, right? And now you can be more sure about how you're making the decision because you see it and feel it. Where you're not seeing as much spending, though the money is there for it, would be 
in the non-durable kind of category. So you're not seeing people do a whole lot more traveling, more than what they normally would. You just, it's a matter of time. You're not going to have the ability to take extra vacation time on average or go and have your hair, you know, styled more than you normally would. You just don't have the leeway to, to do that. But also because in the case of travel, the prices have become so inflationary to fly anywhere. It's just not as uh, economically viable as it was a couple of years ago for obvious reasons. But the the question of license is really interesting. We talk about sort of moral license in behavioral science. I suppose this is financial license. It's sort of the equivalent of like if I do my domestic recycling, then I feel on the other side of the ledger that it's sort of perfectly okay for me to burn my carbon footprint heavily by flying or driving a diesel car. So you sort of balancing both sides of the ledger and often one ends up sort of rather overcompensating or one goes to the gym now and again and therefore feel that it's okay to eat a few puddings. So let me just ask then, by the way, we're going back to the beginning of this question. Are financial services actually as far ahead of the field as I'm suggesting, or is that rather illusory? I think that they're far ahead in that people are very, very aware of behavioral science, whether you're talking to a product owner or you're talking to somebody in in the pension industry, for instance. I think much of that is because there are very documented effects of things like pension defaults, for instance. And there is a desire, therefore, to learn about these sorts of insights, where I think that we're not as far ahead as we could be in financial services is in terms of, you know, building products that have these sorts of insights in their DNA. I think we're not as far ahead as we could be when it comes to designing policies from day one with behavioral science to try and understand why we're not as far ahead as we might be. I think one of the things that comes to mind is licensing, which we've talked about. And I think it's partly, you know, on the side of those who use behavioral science, I feel like perhaps, you know, we feel like we're doing pretty well because we've got some behavioral science insights integrated into what we do. And I think maybe there's also a little bit of a a tendency to feel like knowing about the biases is enough. I know that's what I had encountered with past clients when I was working in the pension industry, where there was, you know, a huge interest in, in being educated about the biases that influence you as a plan administrator, but also, you know, what would be impacting plan members. But there's a need to, to go beyond that and actually, you know, think about how to build long-term applications as opposed to one-shot applications. Exactly. There's this, I think, balance between the rigor of the more sort of scientific pilot and then how one translates that really into the wild and makes it scalable. Uh, I think that's really the challenge now is to start to sort of work out how we can see real impact in financial services. Talking of pensions, which you mentioned, I mean, the poster child example, which always comes up when we think about impact at scale in terms of behavioral science and financial services is the Shlomo Barnazzi, Richard Thaler, Save More Tomorrow program, which helps Americans set aside money for retirement. I think that's it's over 15 years old now, and it's helped over 15 million savers. So that's real impact in front of our eyes. And there are there's a plethora of field experiments out there. But I wonder whether there are any other examples which are really noteworthy, maybe beyond your own work in the first instance that you're excited about or interventions that have really changed the lives of many. Or, or by the way, maybe you're saying that they're just so few and far between. And that's the challenge we're really facing, that there's lots of interest, lots of small pilots and experiments, but really not enough real action. 
Yeah, I think what's exciting me is that I'm seeing more of an appetite to think about the life course. So I think that's where Save More Tomorrow was on to something. And I mean, it's been highly successful in terms of thinking not just about, you know, what do we need to do upon enrollment, but how do we keep people on the right track for the long term? What I would hope and aspire for our field is that we think even further than that and, you know, try to incorporate other interventions that help people you know, once they're in that pre-retirement mode, for instance, or when they need more advice or when it is that they're actually, you know, into that decumulation phase, that's where I feel like more needs to be done. And I think, you know, what is making me feel excited is that there's, there's an appetite for that. I think the same thing needs to happen when it comes to that discussion of how we get people to graduate beyond their status quo. And I always turn to the example of how do you get people to know when they need advice? You know, we might have a particular client who starts out, they don't have assets that make them eligible for advice. So maybe they're not receiving financial advice, but then they kind of graduate. They have enough assets, their, their needs are more complex. And so they can have human-based advice. And that's you know, something that's necessary for them. How do we get them to be okay with, with actually moving up the ladder in terms of that type of connection and, and guidance? I think there's a lot of places where we need to encourage that, you know, movement from one solution that was really good to the next solution that will serve better given people's changing life. And I think the shifts that you're talking about in terms of trying to move people from their status quo towards maybe receiving advice when we believe that they need it, you know, reflects a whole a lot of kind of biases or unconscious decision-making biases that we're all riddled with because, you know, we're all to some degree cognitively lazy. We may have be fearful. We just get overwhelmed by choice or effort required when it comes to dealing with money. And I think when it comes to protecting ourselves or thinking about our long-term future, it's not that we have preferences not to do something. It's often that we just have a preference to do nothing. And that's really the issue. So as behavioral scientists, I think we need to design the path of least resistance. I think the other challenge, by the way, is that unconscious is really an operative word here, because I think most of us probably believe that we behave totally rationally when it comes to our money. So maybe that's a good jump off point into some of the work you're doing at BE Works, Michelle. Maybe just give a flavor of some of the major challenges that you and your team are tackling right now. And I know you're covering all sorts of areas from saving to investing to credit and debt and consumer protection and so on. So give us a, give us a little color on that. Yeah, absolutely. So at BE Works, I believe it was really, you know, some of the very first clients that we had were, were those in financial services. And the earliest challenges that we tackled really related to, to debt management. We wanted to help get people out of, you know, sort of that collections experience, but also be more preemptive and make sure they don't fall off course to begin with. Now we're looking at, yeah, trying to make an impact across a, a wide array <laughs> of challenges, you know, whether it's from how to get people to save more, take advice, choose more diversified portfolios, increase how quickly they pay back debt through to things like how to protect people from fraud and actually get them to, to work with their banks to, to protect themselves in the future or you know reduce the, the time it takes for them to actually get through a particular process like claims handling, for instance. So that, that kind of speaks to the point you'd made around you know making it an easier path so when it comes to, say, the question of consumer protection and fraud, where do you see the line between outside regulation, in other words, enforced boundaries, and self-regulation? 
Well, there I think what's required is that we have institutions that enable consumers to make the choice that's going to be the best for them. And I think a lot of times it is about thinking about how you make the right information available. In the case of you know the work we've done for certain financial institutions in this area, you know we have to try to make sure that consumers are comfortable with the process that they need to actually move through to protect themselves. The work I'm thinking about in particular was clients who have a credit card, the card has been compromised and you know the bank wants to get into touch with them as quickly as possible to let them know this. And the idea is you know, let's let people have some power over what happens to them. Let's not just shut their card down. We need to certainly let them know that we suspect that there is fraud on their card. Mm-hmm. Customers call in and, you know, they're kind of frustrated. Why is it that my card, I can't use it? And so this was a process that was developed to try and help people to actually self-resolve the, the fraudulent incident by responding to a text message. And the thing was that text messages from one's bank, they're just, at least here in Canada, that's not very common. (laughs) It's a little bit weird to actually get a text message from your bank saying that, you know, there's been this suspected incident with your credit card. So we developed a whole approach to, to communicating with clients through this series of SMS and giving clients the choice of how to actually resolve the fraudulent incident, whether it's calling in or, you know, just responding to the, the message itself. And one of the main things that we learned is that you really need to emphasize to clients who are a little bit put off maybe and suspicious that they have control of the situation. And, you know, it's not going to take that long for them to give the bank the information that's needed to have this situation resolved. I think a lot of times that's one of the big barriers in financial services is that clients don't feel like they have control and don't trust the institution or the industry. And I wonder to what degree that is because people do feel like, you know, finances, personal finances are challenging and oftentimes a little bit isolating because you don't talk to others in your life about them necessarily or feel ultimately that that competent. That's a really nice ending point to your story, which brings to mind another example of high impact behavioral science in finance, which I really like, when I think particularly about sort of high friction experiences and access to finance challenges. I think we've talked about this ourselves before. I like the FAFSA example, the application for federal student aid for college students in the US. Are you familiar with those experiments? I mean, just as brief explanation, I mean, there are a number, I think, of well-documented experiments with FAFSA, which, as I say, is a long and tricky application form for college students to apply for finance to enter college. And I think historically, had very, very low completion rates because I think as we touched on, the cognitive overload or the psychological friction presented by this extraordinarily lengthy, complex application form was a huge behavioral barrier. And I think one of the key experiments which increased application into the hundreds of thousands for students was that the FAFSA form became a part of the college enrollment process rather than its own separate lengthy form. And so removed this decision, this pressure to make a decision whether to apply for it in the first place. And the reason I like that example is because I think it's a great one for a really sort of simple minimalist intervention, which actually doesn't really cost a huge amount of money to implement, but has a huge impact in this case on educational outcomes. That's the key, I think. Sometimes we're able to come up with a solution that is easier 
it's easier than what is already kind of the current state approach. That kind of brings to mind another example of some of the work that we've done. And this is in the area of how to get people to save for the long term. And so the client we worked with, they, they wanted to develop a savings app. And there's lots of savings apps out there. They tend to be, you know, a way for you to save up for a vacation or the way to save up for something that you you buy in the short term, not something that helps you save for your retirement. And, you know, one of the, the main barriers that we identified there was that such a long term goal and people don't connect to the future self. And that means that people are very impatient with any process whether it's simply just downloading an app or setting it up, they're also not feeling that there's any urgency whatsoever. And so, you know, a lot of reasons why why they wouldn't end up actually using this app to help themselves save. Even if they did, I mean, they probably wouldn't even be particularly generous because it would be like they're, you know, giving away money to a stranger. And so we looked at research in this area and there has been a lot of work that's done, obviously, on the future self. And a lot of the interventions there are are complicated. They're very complicated and they're probably quite difficult to actually implement. For instance, you know, you're going to upload a picture of your face and the face is then going to be kind of aged, virtually aged, so you can see what it looks like when you're older. And you're going to look at that image and then that's going to influence you when you you make your savings decision. And so at least for our client, where they were at in their, you know, development stage, that just felt like an awful lot to bite off and try to accomplish when building out an intervention. So part of our goal for the entire project was to see, well, what can we get away with? What would be slightly easier to accomplish to see if we can, you know, bring about uh, an effect on savings behaviors just to know if we're on the right track. And this is even a concept that we could put into a savings app that would give us the confidence then to, you know, to actually go that direction and really build it out and launch it in real life. And so we we built this whole onboarding experience within the app where people just answer some questions as opposed to, you know, looking at their own aged face. Instead, they're asking themselves, you know, how am I going to be in the future? How similar is that maybe to, to who I am and what I do now? And, you know, this was a fairly simple version of something that has been tried elsewhere. And what we found is that it actually did generate far greater savings intentions in those individuals who are part of our experiment. And so I think sometimes, yeah, it's, it's possible to find a simpler solution uh, that can still have some impact. And I think it's partly very important to think about where you build that into a program of research with clients, because sometimes they just don't have the budget or the time to, you know, build out the ideal state. And you need to start with something smaller first to then, you know, really get the momentum to really do that transformative mandate next. Yeah, a baby steps approach and an iterative viewpoint, I think often works best. I'm glad your experiment worked rather than the looking at our own aged face, which feels <laughs> a little dystopian, quite frankly. Now, let's conclude with a special money quickfire round that I've prepared specially for you, Michelle, if that's okay. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Right. You, don't, you can be very spontaneous with this. Don't think too much. Right. Are you a saver or a spender? I'm a saver for sure. <laughs> What is your greatest money weakness? 
probably there's a strong money taboo in my family. We don't talk about money, which is a weakness in that it would be nice to have those kinds of conversations. And it's just like I've come out of a background where we don't talk about money, which is kind of ironic because I then went into you know academia where everybody talks about money and funding and grants. And now I'm in a role where like financial decision making and money is the focus of a majority of my work. But sometimes, you know, it'd be nice to have a little bit more of a holistic set of money conversations. Yeah. Right. You you don't have some hopeless Harley Davidson addiction or buying Rolex watches. No, I would say I'm stingy. (laughs) Right. Well, I don't know how you're going to answer this one in which case, but what's been your most extravagant purchase? I spend a tremendous amount of money on bicycles and activities that kind of take me away. and, And, you know, I like spending money on travel for sure. So I wasn't a million miles off with Harley Davidson, but maybe the (laughs) the non-electrified versions. Penultimately, what would you do if you won the lottery jackpot? Well, I think I would probably think about buying a vacation home. That's something I've wanted to do for a long time. And then I think I would share some money and invest the rest. And finally, what's the most important lesson you've learned about money? That I am the same as everybody else and that everybody's got the same biases and that even when you know that you're nudging yourself, it can help you. I think that's an important level of self-awareness for any sensible, thoughtful behavioral scientist that you know, in the end, we're all as susceptible as, <laughs> as the rest to the biases which we describe so frequently and which we're trying to test and, and push back against. So with that, Michelle, let me thank you hugely for joining me today and speaking so eloquently both about yourself and on your subject and giving us something of the inside track on what behavioral science practitioners are preoccupied by in financial services. And I think, as you said, this is a subject that we all deal with or think about in some way every day, and even more so uh, as the cost of living increases. And I think if your work can go a little way to help us to manage that pain by encouraging us to think creatively, laterally, and not always conventionally about our money, then that's all for the better. And I think it's this type of thinking, which is at the heart of great behavioral science. So thank you, Michelle, once more. Yeah, it was my pleasure. A lot of fun chatting with you. Next week on the show, I welcome Alex Chesterfield, Head of Behavioral Risk at NatWest Group in the UK, where she and her team develop innovative data-led ways to reduce the risk of poor outcomes for the bank and customers, which result from behavioral root causes. She is also the author of the highly acclaimed Poles Apart, Why People Turn Against Each Other and How to Bring Them Together, clearly a book for our times. Lastly, as always, if you enjoy these podcasts, please do leave me a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your support is what makes us tick. Thank you and see you next time.